If you will, turn in that Bible to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, I've titled the message, as you will tell as we go forward, Look to Christ, Look to Christ. And we're in John 3, 11 through 15, in that great discussion of our Lord with Nicodemus, the one who came to him. And it's interesting because he's going to talk uh, as Jesus is going to speak in verse 12. We'll read that in just a moment. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then he said emphatically, no one, verse 13, 3.13, has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And I find that fascinating because there is a whole new genre in Christian publishing today. It's a new one. Hasn't existed until our day, our time, of people who have gone to heaven and come back. And uh, Tim Challies, who writes a blog, has written effectively on this. And he wrote a blog called Traveling to Heaven and Back he said, is where it's at today. Maybe you've seen his book, Don Piper. Don't don't confuse that with John Piper, no relation. Don Piper spent 90 minutes there and sold 4 million copies of his account. That's a lot of books. That's a lot of books. You say, well, how many books is 4 million? Well, it's 4 million. If a... If a man, when I asked Kent Hughes, uh, author, writer of scripture and ministry, how many his commentaries sell for Crossway, Kent Hughes told me, oh, he goes, Crossway just takes me on as a ministry. He goes, Crossway publisher just takes me on as the effect it will have on other men who read my commentaries and spread the word. I said, how many do your commentaries sell? He said, about 10 to 15,000. Well, if you write a book on heaven... By Don Piper, it's 90 minutes in heaven. It sold 4 million copies. Colton Burpo, okay, doesn't know how long he was there, but his travel diary has surpassed 6 million copies sold. Bill Weiss, if you've seen his name, W-I-E-S-E, obviously booked his trip on the wrong website and found himself in hell. But he wrote 23 minutes in hell, and it sold better than if he had described a journey to, say, Detroit. And uh, he saw his book hit the bestseller list for a few weeks. There have been others as well, Chalice has said, who together they've established an afterlife travel journal as a whole new genre in Christian publishing. Uh, Charlie's went on to say, I'll grant you that the cost of this type of journey is rather steep. You've got to die, though only for just a few minutes, but it's a sound investment when you factor in the sales figures. He says, I can think of quite a few authors who would trade a few minutes of life for 50 plus weeks on the bestseller list and a few appearances on TBN. You could obviously see that he's writing with a little bit of a bite, isn't he? He said the most recent heaven tourist is a woman by the name of Mary Neal. And much like 
Todd Burpo, who is responsible for taking his, son, his son's adventures to print. Neil only decided to write about her experiences after the fact, after all those other I Went to Heaven books began to sell hundreds of thousands of copies. But that's just definitely just coincidence. She initially self-published her book, Did Mary Neal? It was called To Heaven and Back. But once it started generating buzz, and by buzz, selling lots of copies, Multnomah scraped it off the bottom of a shoe somewhere and reissued it. And with extra marketing, it made its debut on the New York Times list of bestsellers. And Chalice went on to say, I just couldn't bear to read it all. It may be worse than the others, and it contains even less Christian theology, less gospel, and far more New Age nonsense, he said. He said, did Chalice up to heaven and back, he said, it is pure junk. Fiction in the guise of biography. Paganism in the guise of Christianity. He said, but I do want to address a question that often arises around this book and others in the genre. How do I respond to those who say they've been to heaven and back? When a person who claims to be a Christian tells me he has been to heaven, he asks this question, am I obliged to believe him or at least to give him the benefit of the doubt? And Chelly said... I do not believe them. And I would say to you, I don't believe them either. I think it is a very convenient way to sell books. I think it's a convenient way to talk about the afterlife all the while it glorifies and what, what Chalice would say is even non-biblical and nonsense. Especially when you have a sure word from one who has been to heaven and back, it's the Lord Jesus Christ. So take that Bible this morning and you'll see how this will come out as we go. And let's look at that passage of Scripture. Let me read for you our text this morning in 311. And you'll see emphatically what Jesus said about this type of stuff. He said, truly, truly, 311, I say to you, we speak what we know and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony." He said, if I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up or will be lifted up that whoever, verse 15, believes in him may have eternal life. And then the next scripture, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Maybe we stop right there. Do you remember that we said that from John 3, 1 through 10, the focus was on the sovereignty of God in regeneration. Five different times, Jesus used the word that you must be born again or born from above. It is the sovereign work of God in the heart of a dead sinner. And we looked at that truth. It's undeniable in Scripture. But as I mentioned last week, from verses 3, 11 through 21, our Lord uses the word believe. And so here, the new birth is appropriated by faith. So on the one hand, last week's message, 
We said, on the one hand, it is a sovereign work of God is the new birth. But on the other hand, you have a human responsibility to respond to the gospel itself. And I highlighted this book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. We have 10 copies out at the hub. I forgot how much they're worth. You can go out there. You can read this book in a couple hours. It will summarize my argument if you weren't here last week. And uh, that's such an important message. On the one hand, God sovereignly breathes new life into people. On the other hand, he commands people to repent. So in one passage right here, in one chapter here, chapter 3, in one gospel, John, you have the new birth in which man is passive, but you also have a strong command to believe the gospel from the lips of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me see if I can give you the roadmap of where we're going today. Jesus first is going to answer a question that Nicodemus asked in verse 9. So he's going to answer a question. Secondly, he's going to use an analogy to bring that truth home. And then thirdly, he's going to draw an application to bring the whole focus back for us in terms of what we must do. So there's an answer, there's an analogy, and there is an application. So here are three insights from the text that lead to believing in Christ. That's his focus here. He goes from the sovereignty of God to now three insights that is pushing and leading to believing in Jesus Christ. Now, if you look back at verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, and he was the man who came to Jesus at night, and you remember Jesus said, you must be born again or you can't enter the kingdom of God. You must be born of the water and the spirit. Um, In verse 6, he told him to not marvel that you must be born again. He gave him the analogy in verse 8 of the wind blowing where it is. Verse 9, he said, or at the end of verse 8, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him in verse 9, how can these things be? Okay, Then what Jesus is going to do is respond. And he did. Look at verse 10. We left off there. Are you the teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. And so Nicodemus asked a question, how can these things be? And here now is the answer is detailed, okay, on your outline. The answer is detailed. Now, you've got to follow the argument with me. Put your thinking caps on, but I think it's clear, and I trust if it's clear to me, it will be clear to you. Um, that would be my hope and my prayer and my desire. But look at verse 11. Pick it up here. It, and, and what's interesting, just a little footnote, Nicodemus goes silent after this. So the dialogue turns into monologue. And I believe that Jesus is going to address that question in verse 9, in verse 11, all the way down through verse 21. So we could say that dialogue becomes monologue. But here is the answer is detailed. Look at verse 11. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know 
and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Okay? Now here, as I just pointed out, he's answering the question that he asked in verse 9, how can these things be true, if you will? How can these things be? Now you'll note that the Lord says, look at verse beginning as we just create a little bit of a platform. Truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, our Lord is going to speak truth. And whenever you see that phrase, truly, truly, amen and amen, it is a sacred declaration that he is about to make. So he's going to tell him something very, very important. And by the Spirit of God, he'll tell you something very, very important as we're reading and studying his word. Now look again at verse 11. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. Stop there just for a second. Now you read that. You could say to you. Who is he speaking of there? You'd say, well, Nicodemus. And I, I think Nicodemus is there. He just, I just mentioned that he doesn't speak anymore. But what's interesting is in verse 11, he says, I say to you, and the word is not singular. The word is plural. In other words, as he's addressing it to Nicodemus, he's, I'm certainly looking at him. And by the way, we're just going to go through this as we would in an exposition. But I think this conversation was hours long. You're just getting a small framework of it. But he says, I say to you, but it's plural. He, he's, he's talking to other people who are listening in on this. And I, and I think he answers that way in, uh, in verse 11. I say to you, because would you back up to chapter 3 in verse 2? When he says, when Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, do you see that phrase there? We know that you are a teacher from God. He didn't say, I know. He said, we know, and I think he's speaking there on behalf of the Sanhedrin, on behalf of the Pharisees. He's a spokesman for them. So it could be that Jesus now is not only referring to Nicodemus, he's referring to a greater body of people. In fact, you'll notice there, look again at verse 11. Did you note this? He said, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. Who are the we and the are? I don't want to get too nitpicky. Certainly, it's speaking of Christ. Christ is talking. But I also believe that the we or the are can include the prophets. He just told them that, Nicodemus, you should have understood the new birth from Ezekiel 36. The prophet spoke of the new birth. But when Jesus says here, we speak, we know, we've seen, I think he's including also John the Baptist in that. Because look what it says there. He says, we bear witness to what we have seen. Now, if you go back to John chapter 1, let me just show you this. You remember that John the Baptist came in 1-7 as a witness to bear witness about the light. That's the reason he was born. That purpose clause, all might believe through him. So he is a witness, is he not? Look down in chapter 1, verse 15. John, speaking not of John the Apostle, but John the Baptist, he bore witness, there's that word, about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. If you glance down at 119, 
when it says there, and this is, here's the same word, the testimony of John. So John, you remember his ministry was to bear witness regarding the person of Christ. Glance down in chapter 1 in verse 32 where it says, And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. His whole purpose of his whole ministry was to bear witness regarding the truth. Look at chapter 1 verse 34. I have, John says, seen and have borne witness, this is the best statement of all, that this is the Son of God. And so you have people that have borne witness regarding the person of Christ, and I don't think it's only Christ. I think the prophets are in that lineage. I think John the Baptist is in that heritage. Look over at chapter 3 in verse 32, the chapter we're in, but just down a little bit, where it's speaking of... Um, it's actually speaking of Christ here. John is speaking, look at 3.30, John the Baptist, he, Christ, must increase, but I, John, must decrease. He, Jesus, who comes from above, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in earthly ways. He comes from heaven, is above all. He, speaking of Christ, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Now, come back there now to John chapter 3. You have these type of statements that the scriptures in John chapter 5 bear witness to Christ. Later, in John chapter 8, verse 14, the disciples will bear witness to Christ. So Jesus here... In 3.11 says, we speak him, I would think later the disciples, certainly John the Baptist. I think I would include the prophets in that. We bear witness to what we have seen, okay? In other words, beloved, this is firsthand knowledge. If you're a student this morning, these are eyewitness accounts. We're back to that theme. This is not something made up. We've heard it. We've seen it. It comes from the lips of Jesus himself. So Jesus says, we speak, we know, we have seen. And what he's seen, I think, here in the focus is speaking of the new birth. We know that to be true. Now, just on a whole nother level, you don't turn there, but John the Apostle said this when we studied years earlier, 1 John 2, 1, when John, who is writing this gospel, said that the life, speaking of Christ, was manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us which we have seen and heard. So I think Jesus says, Nicodemus, I say to you and to all your people of the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin and the Jewish nation, we have spoken what we have seen and what we have heard. But the clincher is not what I just said. The clincher is the last phrase in verse 11. Look at it there. He says, but you do not receive our, what? Our testimony. In other words, Jesus says, I've told you the truth, 
but you've not received our testimony. So listen, his rejection was a failure to believe the witness and the testimony of Christ. It wasn't an issue of confusion. In fact, look back just a couple chapters. You remember in John chapter 1, certainly you know that great phrase in John 1.11 when John there says that he came into his own and his own people did not, what? Receive him. So it is not that Nicodemus failed to understand Jesus. At the root of his heart here is an unwillingness to believe. Very important. You do not receive our testimony. I could say this. You notice Jesus didn't say, you are not elect. The issue here is unbelief. We've seen, we've heard, we spoke, and you do not receive our testimony about the truthfulness of Jesus Christ. So Jesus now says to him, follow the argument. In verse 12, he keeps going. He says to Nicodemus and a broader audience, if I told you earthly things, second time, and you do not believe, okay? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things, okay? Now, what are the earthly things? Jesus says to Nicodemus, I told you earthly things. What are those? Some say that the earthly things could be the wind and the birth, the physical birth that is mentioned, okay? And then if you take it as the wind and physical birth is mentioned, then the heavenly things are the new birth. But I don't think that's the issue because I don't think anybody disbelieves the wind, do you? No unbeliever is going to disbelieve the wind. No unbeliever who, who has life and breath is not going to say he wasn't physically born. So I don't think that's the issue. The issue here is this. Nicodemus could not understand, here, here's how I'd say it, the earthly thing of the new birth, the doctrine of regeneration. In other words, it occurs on earth, the new birth. He couldn't understand. And so Jesus, in essence, is saying, what use is it to go on to greater truths, such as understanding the intricacies of the Trinity, or that Jesus is God, or that the Word became flesh in Job. John chapter 1, or even the gift of eternal life that he'll speak of in John 3, 16. Those are the heavenly things. Now, now watch this. Do you see that last phrase? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? I think he's going to establish his unique authority to speak on heavenly things. And here's his unique authority. Look at verse 13. No one, Jesus says has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And this verse connects to the preceding verse, and it provides an explanation for the fact that Jesus is able to speak authoritatively on heavenly things. Listen, only if you have been to heaven can you describe heaven. Only if you've been to heaven can you talk about heavenly things. And Jesus emphatically said there that no one, it's right there, has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven. Okay? Now, let me explain this just for a second. The Jews of Jesus' day had circulated stories, sounds like our day, of past saints who had ascended into heaven 
and received spiritual insight into God's ways and into God's plans. And many of these focus, many of these focuses, if you will, or stories, focused on the character of Moses. And Jesus here, in this statement that he makes in verse 13, is insisting that no one has ascended to heaven in such a way to return and talk about heavenly things. Now, he has, if you will, descended, verse 13, from heaven in his incarnation to address the heavenly things. Now, this is not a small feature, and we're going to catch this going forward. But look over in, let me just show you a few phrases. Look over in John chapter 6 for a moment. And here I'm just biblically illustrating that he descended from heaven. Okay, in John chapter 6, in verse 33, he's talking there in verse 32. He said to them, truly I say to you, it was, he says, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father who gives you the true bread from heaven Verse 33, for the bread of heaven is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So here, Christ is the one, if you will, is the manna, is the bread that comes down from heaven and is the giver of life, not just to the nation, but to the world. Look a little bit down at John chapter 6. In verse 38, couldn't be any clearer. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Look at John chapter 6 in verse 51. He says there, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Look over in your Bible at John chapter 8 in verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me for, and implied here, I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he who sent me. Okay, and you have other statements in John 13, 3, in John 16, 28, in 17, 5, many different times that he came down from heaven. Now, some of you might think, well, hey, Lazarus one time died and came back. I understand that. There's some rare exceptions. There's a rare exception after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Graves were opened and some saints returned in Matthew chapter 27. Paul, as you know, was caught up into the third heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and so forth. And you have very rare exceptions. But Jesus here is establishing his authority to speak such truth, to bear witness, to give testimony, and says emphatically back there in John chapter 3 that no one has ascended there into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As one writer said, there's only one gospel, only one heavenly message that came down, and that's from Jesus. So not even the most religious saint, not people who think that they are special because of transcendental meditation, that they can ascend to some higher level of consciousness, and then they ascend, you know, to, to greater depths. I mean, that's just 
As one said, ridiculous, mindless meandering. No person has gone to heaven and brought down the truth. Not Ron L. Hubbard, not Mary Baker Eddy, not Joseph Smith, not any angel, not any human being. Jesus said, I am the only one who have come down from heaven, and I'm the only one who ever came down from heaven with the truth, with a message. Nicodemus, that's what I'm declaring to you. It's an amazing thought. He is the only heavenly source of heavenly truth. He is authoritative because he is, in that phrase in verse 13, the son of man. And that's a big phrase taken from Daniel chapter 7, where it is a messianic title that was given to Christ. So in that one statement there, he says he is the promised Messiah. So watch this. Nicodemus himself at that moment, at that time, is speaking to God in human flesh. Nicodemus, if you will, is talking to a heavenly being. He is talking to the eternal Son of God. And the eternal Son of God is saying, don't believe anything other than this because no one has gone up to heaven and brought down the truth. I have come from heaven with the truth. That's a significant statement by Jesus. That's why Paul, you well know, says if you believe in any other gospel according to Galatians 1, you are what? Cursed. Because there's no one, if you, be, if you will, been to heaven and brought it down. And if someone has been to heaven and brought it down, I'm telling you, the Bible says it's earthly. It's demonic. It's inspired. It's the work of demons. A combination of human ideas and demonic seduction. So, again, you have these statements. Jesus says no one's ever gone into heaven except for the one who descended from heaven, and that is the Son of Man. Only Jesus, the one who dwelt in glory with his Father, who became flesh, has given a full account of God the Father. Only Jesus, according to Luke 24, descended from heaven, and he actually ascended back to heaven, as you know. Only Jesus can speak of heavenly things, not because he ascended to heaven from a home on earth, and then he descended to tell others about it, okay? But because heaven was his home in the first place, and he is the one who came from heaven, he is the son of man who went back into heaven through his ascension. So when Nicodemus says, how can these things be true? Here's how they're true. Beloved, we're on holy ground right here. I mean, how would Nicodemus know that he's having a face-to-face conversation with God in the flesh? And you want to know how they're true. Here's how it's true. I am the heavenly source with the heavenly message. And only I have the unique sovereign authority to be in unapproachable glory from all eternity. And I'm coming down and I'm telling you this truth. And by the way, I might say that he's telling you that truth right now this morning authoritatively. That's the message of the gospel. Only he is the one who has gone to heaven and come down again. The Son of Man is such the one. Now, what's amazing though, look at verse 14. He gives the answer as detailed, but then he's going to take him to an analogy that he describes. A wonderful truth. Look at verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up? The answer is detailed. Secondly, the analogy is described. And he's describing verse 14, Moses. You see it there. 
He lifted up, there's the key phrase, the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man must be lifted up. Do you remember in Exodus 21, the people were disobedient. You say, well, what did they do? Well, (laughs) all they did was grumble. All they did was complain. All they did is just kind of just say, God, why have you done this? And God punished them. Do you remember? A plague of fiery serpents entered into the camp, and it was decimating Israel. And Israel panicked. What would they do? Do you remember? Well, let me just show you. Look over in Numbers 21. You've got to see this. It's worth our read. Look over in Numbers 21. He's making a huge analogy here. And I know this may be familiar to some of you, new to others, but look at it. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Do you remember this? It was the bronze serpent. And it's there in 21.4 of Numbers. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Here it is. Are you there? It's from Mount Hor. They set out by the way of, to the Red Sea to ground, to go around, if you will, the land of Edom. <laughs> Here it is. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Stop there just for a second. You know, they have a history of complaining. I'm sure we don't, though, right? Um, They have a history of that. Then verse, look at the text in verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they're called fiery because in the Hebrew, they bit and they inflicted a great fever. Okay, that's not all. Look at verse 6. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord, amazing, the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent. Sometimes we say, make a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten when he sees it, shall, what? Live. And here it is. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole, and if the serpent bent anyone, he would look to the bronze serpent and, what? And live. There is the analogy, if you will. In the same way, listen, those who look to Christ when he's lifted up on the cross for the sins of the world, will live spiritually and eternally. So here's what he does. He, there's an answer is detailed, okay? An analogy, if you will, is described. And thirdly, finally here, go back to John, okay? There's the account. Thirdly, the application is drawn. Look back. It's a precious text. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, verse 14, must be lifted up. Now, to be lifted up, you understand, it spoke of his death on a 
what? Cross. That verb, lifted up, always combines the thoughts of being lifted up on the cross. But let me, let me complete that sentence. It is always describing to be lifted up in the cross, but it is always set alongside his exaltation to glory. So when you see that phrase in John's gospel, Jesus was lifted up on the cross to die, but then he was glorified, if you will, in his crucifixion and exalted into glory. Now, let me just show you that. He says it there that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Look over at John chapter 8. And and you know the reason why I show this to you? (laughs) Because I have people who say, that's just your opinion. No, it's not my opinion. I'm teaching the Bible. The only way that you would know the Bible is to teach the Bible, right? So I have people that sometimes say, that's just your thought. No, it's not. That's why we're Teaching the Bible, I'm telling you that lifted up means to speak of his cross. It speaks of his exaltation because the only time it's ever used in John is that's what it means. So you look over, look at John 8.32, excuse me, 8.28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up his cross, the son of man, then you will know that I am he, okay? He's talking about his death. But the key, if you will, is go over to John chapter 12, just for a moment. In John chapter 12, here's the the clarifying statement. In John 12, in verse 32, he said in verse 31, Now this is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself Verse 33, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to what? To die. And so he would, he was lifted up. Let, let me draw out this application. I, I think you see it. Listen, in, in the same way that Israel caring about the deadly poison and venom of the bite of the snake could be delivered from death, if you will, by looking to the bronze serpent. So, too, sinners, if you will, carrying the poison of the arch serpent that results in the death of the entire human race can be delivered from that by looking up to the crucified Savior. Now, listen. I don't think Nicodemus may have grasped this analogy, this, the secondary analogy of the cross because Christ had not died, but he certainly would have understood the bronze serpent. And perhaps only after the event of the cross would it be clear that the lifting up of Jesus was on the cross. And maybe that's when Nicodemus believed. And maybe that's why he was asking for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what's the purpose of being lifted up? Don't, don't miss the simplicity of this. Look back in John 3, 15. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That, purpose clause, whoever, I love this statement, believes in him may have, what? Eternal life. Now, I could go into a whole discourse of what 
I own is, and you understand. It's the age to come. It's the resurrected life. It speaks not only of quantity of life, it's eternal, but it speaks of quality of life now. John 17, 3, this is eternal life that you may know God. So it speaks both of a quality of life now, it speaks of a quantity of life to come. But here, Jesus Christ, if you will, was lifted up. Watch this in verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So listen, as the snake was lifted up, was God's provision. Follow me carefully on this. God's provision for salvation from physical death for rebellious Israel. So now, too, the Son of Man is lifted up, if you will, on an old rugged cross as God's provision for salvation from eternal death that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. In other words, God has provided eternal life in the person of Christ, in his death on the cross, from the consequences of sin for all the people who would but look to Christ and place their faith in Christ. And so I should say, have you done that? Have you done that? Have you looked to Christ He's so gentle here, I think, with Nicodemus. He gives him an answer to his question. He gives him an analogy that he would understand from Numbers 21. And then he draws the application to the person of himself who would be lifted up on his behalf. You know, it's amazing if you just think about this. In the Old Testament, the cure, right, You think back about that plague, was not finding the proper medicines. It was not providing the proper vaccines. They weren't looking for the right antidotes. They weren't looking for the right serums. They weren't looking for the right drugs. They weren't doing some kind of special concoction. They weren't going out and mixing herbs. They weren't turning over a new leaf. All they had to do was look. It's, it's super humbling. You say, well, Scott, there must have been something else. No, there wasn't something else. It was a look. There was a, a brazen serpent, if you will, lifted up on a pole. And the sad thing is, according to 2 Kings 18, they started worshiping that thing and bringing offerings to it, and Hezekiah had to put a stop to it. Because really, it wasn't the brazen pole and the brazen serpent. It was a means of God's grace to be physically saved. But Jesus now is so much better because he said here, as they look to that brazen serpent to find salvation in their physical life, Jesus is now saying to everyone who looks at me, you shall be saved for eternal life. Listen, the whole world, beloved, has been bitten by sin. And the wages of sin is death. And Our only hope is Christ. Our only cure is Christ. Our only remedy is Christ. So I'm asking you, have you looked to Him? Have you looked up to the Savior and see what He's done? Listen, you don't have to fast. You don't have to take a pilgrimage. You don't have to be baptized. 
You don't supposedly have to go to heaven and back. You just need to look to the person of Christ. Listen, you don't need the latest drug. You don't need the latest psychotherapy. You don't need the latest counselor. Because I know some who go from one to another to another to another to another to another to another and then a Christianized and then a psychologist and they look to everyone except for Christ. All you need is to look to Jesus Christ. It was God's grace when the nation of Israel, if they looked, were healed at the bronze serpent. And now, too, if you look to Christ, there is an infinite healing far more powerful than just physical life. It is eternal life that is given to those who believe on the person of Jesus Christ. Amen? Have you looked to him? Fathers, you've got to have your children look to him. This is not a religion of do-good works. This is not a religion of turning over a new leaf. This is the grace of God where he lifted up Jesus Christ on the cross for you. And you have to set your gaze upon him. You have to believe on him. You have to believe that he died on the cross. That he who was infinite God. That he who dwelt in unapproachable glory. That he who existed from all time. That he who created the world. That he who said nothing has come into being. That has come into being. Has come down in the incarnation. Down to this earth. To die in your place for your sins. And you must now look up to him have you done that i mean i told you that a thousand times with me it was 14 i came to the end of myself i saw my sin and all i could do is glance at the savior who died in my place and i got on my knees and i trusted christ you look back and you think couldn't they have done something else in numbers 21 no just the look (laughs) Just imagine if you just, it's latched onto you, okay? And venom's in you. And the fiery poison is on you. And he, God, what should we do? And Moses prayed and God said, just take this pole and stick it in and lift it up. And if they just look to it, they're going to be saved. Well, listen, Jesus transforms that analogy with this application. You've just got to look to him. On January 6th, have you heard this? 1815. 1850, it was a snowstorm, and it crippled the city of Colchester, England. And there was a teenage boy walking to his church, but he, he couldn't get to his church, praise God. He wanted to go to his home church, but he couldn't get there because of the snow, so he made his way to a nearby Methodist chapel where this man would say that an ill-prepared layman was substituting that day for the preacher. He would go on with this teenage boy to say this guy didn't really know what he was saying. In fact, all he could say was the text from Isaiah 45.22. Here's what it says in Isaiah 45.22. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And he kept saying, he kept repeating it. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. And what's interesting, for months this teenager had been miserable. And he had been under deep conviction of his sin. Some of you may feel that way today. And though he had been reared in the church, this teenager, his father and grandfather were preachers. He did not have the assurance of salvation 
and the unprepared substitute minister did not uh, have much to say, so he kept repeating the text. This text. Look unto me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. And every once in a while, this boy said he would break out with a statement. Anyone can look. A child can look. And about that time... Here's what it says. He saw the visitor, the teenage boy, sitting to one side, and he pointed at him. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. And that young man, that young boy, that teenager, did look by faith. And that is how the great preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon was converted in a Methodist chapel on a snowy day when the pastor didn't have hardly anything to say. It was a substitute pastor, and he pointed right at C.H. Spurgeon and said, young man, look to Christ. And Spurgeon would say that was the day of his salvation. But listen, I just ask you, have you looked to Christ? Has your children looked to Christ? You say, well, Pastor Scott, I'm not ready. Well, you'll never be ready. You say, but Pastor Scott, I'm thinking about this in the future. I'm telling you, you can think about all that stuff and you've got a venom in your blood, in your DNA called sin and the wages of sin is what? Death. And it might not be burning at you right now, but it's going to take your life one day and you need to look to Christ. You need to look at what he's done for you. Beloved, do we not have a wonderful Savior? Do we not have a Savior where he said in John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have what? Eternal life. I pray that you have that. That's my greatest prayer for us as a church, for my children, for my grandchildren, that they have Christ.